Well, it's good to be with you on the Lord's Day. It's good to come and worship with you. It's good for us to be together this morning. And we want to open God's Word now and see what God has to tell us directly from Scripture. And I want to open these things up to you as I preach on these and and see the truths there in God's Word. We've been looking in the book of Ephesians at chapter 1. And for the past four weeks, we have considered what the Trinitarian God, our God, has done for us in salvation. And so this week, we're at the end of that long paragraph, verses 11 through 14 of chapter 1. I want to read the whole paragraph to you so you can see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And then today, we'll be looking at our inheritance. It's part four of the spiritual blessings in Christ that he mentions in verse 3. And then he goes along and details what these blessings are. And today we look at our inheritance, our inheritance that Christ has given us and that the Holy Spirit has sealed for us. So we're in Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, period. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. You might have noticed there in the last few verses that inheritance has mentioned twice. An inheritance that we receive. In the world, an inheritance often involves wealth. It might involve money, property. But when it comes to our spiritual inheritance, that's eternal salvation. That's eternal salvation to be with God, to be with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit into eternity with a new resurrected body. It's the hope of every believer. And we've been considering throughout this paragraph what God is doing for us. And he comes now to the end to talk about the inheritance. But before that, in uh, part one of the series, we looked at chosen by the Father. The work that the Father does to choose some, to elect some for salvation. Then we looked at predestined for a purpose in part two, the Father's work of of marking out believers, a different facet of the diamond, really, of salvation, and how the Father marks out people for a purpose, for a reason. And that purpose was adoption as sons, and eventually to praise Him for His glory. And in part three, last week, we looked at redeemed by grace, verses seven through ten. And we looked at the Son's work of redemption. What has the Son done? And He's died on the cross through His blood. He's ransomed a people. Those same people that God chose, those same people that God predestined, the Son has come into the world to ransom them, to redeem them, to bring about forgiveness of sins when people trust in Him, when they have faith in Christ. And now today we look at the Spirit's work. The Spirit's work. And we see the whole Trinity here. Non-Trinitarians will say The Trinity is not mentioned in the Bible, but this is one of those passages that's clear. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. J.C. Ryle, the great commentator of the 1800s and pastor, he said, it was the whole Trinity which at the beginning of creation said, let us make man. And it was the whole Trinity again, which at the beginning of the gospel seemed to say, let us save man. Our great God, our wonderful God has saved us, has saved us from wrath, from judgment, from eternity in hell, to be punished forever and ever. We want to consider specifically the 
inheritance that we get and what the Son has done for that inheritance and what the Spirit has done to make sure we get that inheritance. That's what I want you to see here in this passage today. 11 through 14, we're looking at our eternal inheritance based upon our union with Christ, the fact that we're united with Him, and secondly, that we are eternally secure, eternally secure because of what the Spirit has done. There's going to be two main points, so you can follow along if you're taking notes. First of all, we want to look at an inheritance grounded in Christ. This inheritance doesn't come through anyone else in any other way. It comes through Christ. It's grounded. It's founded upon Him. It's based on Him. That's how the passage starts out. I've talked to you, though, about how verses are divided up and how in church history, about 1500s, they started sectioning up the verses. Originally, this paragraph from 3 to 14 was one whole sentence. But for our help, people began to divide it up. And the punctuation doesn't always work out. Later, scholars come back and study it. And so you see something like in verse 11, the in him at the end of verse 10 is actually connected to verse 11. So that's where we'll start. In him. In him also. We have obtained an inheritance. The NASB says have obtained an inheritance. Literally, the word here is we've been appointed to receive an inheritance. We've been allotted. It's a rare uh, use of the word here in Greek that we've been allotted. It's back to choosing. God has chosen a people and he's allotted to them something special called an inheritance. Uh, An eternal salvation forever with God. A, A new body without sin and without the effects of sin. We won't be able to sin if we have a new body in Christ when he returns. And we won't be suffering under the effects of sin upon this world. We won't hurt. We won't cry. It may be tears of joy, but not tears of pain. There won't be sin, and there won't be the effects of sin in the world. That's an inheritance that we can look forward to. And it says obtained there, as I said, in the NASB, but... Don't let that mislead you. Don't, don't think that we can work to obtain it. That's not what it's saying there. It's not that we can work hard enough and maybe we'll obtain it. No, this is a passive verb. It's a passive verb in Greek. It's a divine passive because the, the subject's not stated. It just says we have obtained it. In Christ, in Him, we've obtained it. But the idea is that God has given it to us. We're on the receiving end. We're on the passive end of this. We have received an allotment. We have received an inheritance from God. It's a, it's a special inheritance. It's a valuable inheritance. It's not something you can even throw away if you wanted to. Not that we would, but it's an inheritance guaranteed because it's grounded in Christ. Colossians 1.12 says it like this, and Colossians is a nice parallel sometimes to Ephesians. Colossians 1.12, he's talking about giving thanks to the Father who's qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Believers in Christ, those who've been redeemed by Christ, will receive this inheritance. And it's been given to us by the Father, and He's he's the one who's qualified us, Colossians says, qualified us to share in that inheritance of the saints in light, in truth, in holiness, in light. This internal inheritance of a resurrected body and and, and a life without sin and eternal state, it's so certain, Paul says, we've already got it. Now, I know none of us would say we have a resurrected body. At least I hope you wouldn't. But Paul's saying, from the moment that you have faith, from the moment that God changes your heart and you express it through faith and repentance, you have an inheritance. It's in the present tense. God has given it to us and we've received it. God has allotted us that and we have accepted it as believers. Of course, we will want that inheritance. We've already got it. It just hasn't all been accomplished yet, but it's so certain he can speak of it as we have it right now. But notice where we get it. The beginning of the verse, we've got to go back to the end of, of verse 10 really, but in him, in Christ. You only receive it in Christ. He's the grounds of it because we only receive it in Him. In Christ is mentioned 11 times in verses 3 through 14, 30 times in Ephesians. It's a pretty important theme. Union with Christ. Being the preposition here means that you're put into Him. 
Now, we're, of course, not in his body. His body right now is, is in heaven. His body is beside the Father, the right hand of the Father's throne. But we're in him spiritually. It's a spiritual union. We're not little Christ. We're not little gods. But we're his children, God's children, put into the firstborn, into Christ our Savior. We're in him. It's a, the blessing that we're united with him forever. When you're united with Christ, you can't break that. A lot of people are breaking their marriage union today. But you can't break this union with Christ. It's a spiritual union that cannot be dissolved. It's an eternal union. And that blessing of eternal life comes from being united with him. All the blessings actually in the Christian life come from Christ. If you're in Christ, you receive all the blessings. You may not realize it. You may not even use all the gifts that God's given to you because you don't know that you have them yet. Hopefully you'll learn more and more about that as a Christian. But everything comes through Christ. You don't get the blessings of being a Christian anywhere else. You can't say, let me set Christ over here and then I'm just going to do my own thing and be blessed by God for a while. And then I'll come see Christ on Sunday or when I read my Bible. No, every spiritual blessing in verse 3. That's the whole point of this passage, this whole paragraph. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He's in the heavenly places, and later we'll see in Ephesians, we're in the heavenly places with him, even though we're right here. Spiritually speaking, though, we're with Christ, and he's with us. We're united with him, and it cannot be broken. Only those in Christ, though, will receive this inheritance. Go forward to Ephesians 5, 5. Paul's now transitioned later in Ephesians to talk about how to live, now that he's taught in the first three chapters on what to believe, how do we live it out? And in 5.5 5, he says, For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who's an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. No unbeliever, no person that's displaying their unbelief living an immoral life has that inheritance. Only those found in Christ. And there's only one way to be in Christ. From the human perspective, the only way to be there is to have faith in Christ and to repent of your sins. Now, God is behind the scenes. God is the one divinely doing the work to bring us to Christ. But from an unbeliever's standpoint, you're not saved until you've actually trusted in Christ as your Savior and turned from your sin. Then you're in Him. Then you receive this blessing, this inheritance. At the moment a believer is born again, they're united with Him. They receive all those blessings, justification, sanctification, adoption, the inheritance, eternal security, all of those things. What a blessing it is to be in Christ. So he's given us an inheritance, and it's grounded in him. But what's, what's the reason? What's the reason? How does this come about? That's the, the first sub-point I want you to look at here is, how does this come about? How does the inheritance get given to us? It's, yeah, we're united with Christ, and it's through faith, and he'll get to that. But what's God doing to make it happen? How does God actually make sure we receive it? Well, that's the rest of verse 11. Having been predestined. Do you see that word predestined? That's not the first time it's come up in Ephesians, is it? Yeah, we've already seen that back in verse 5. And he's talked about how we were predestined to be adopted as sons because we're in Christ. But also the inheritance as well. We've been predestined to receive it. We receive it because God predestined us to receive it. He predestined us to eternal salvation. If you're in Christ, you can look back and say, God has done this. God has made it happen. God has marked us out before the creation of the world. Verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. You can only know that you're in that group called the predestined if you're in Christ now. You can look back and say, then I must have been predestined. You can't look out at all the unbelievers in the world and pick out who's been predestined or elect. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said, if they had an E on their back, then we could just go preach to them. But, but they don't, he said, so we've got to preach to everybody. And that's the teaching of Scripture. But as a believer now, Paul wants us to know more. He wants us to know who has done this. God has done this. He's predestined us. The word predestined, pro orizo in Greek, means to mark out, to decide beforehand, to predetermine, to foreordain. Again, we see a divine passive here. Who's predestined? Well, 
obviously it's God. He's the only one who was around then to do it, but he's the only one with the power to do it. God has done it. God is doing it. He's, he's the one who's accomplished it. Any inheritance we receive, in other words, how does it come about? Not by us. Not by anything we've done, Paul says, but because God has predestined. God has done it. We can't claim any of it. And he's made that pretty clear throughout this whole paragraph, but he continues to remind us. It's God that we praise. It's to him that we praise him for his glory in salvation. This is predestined. It's very similar to election, but it's focused more on God marking out beforehand people for a specific purpose. And, and he doesn't stop there with it, does he? He goes on. He follows it up here by telling us how God did the predestination. Because that's a question people often have. God is not there to answer all our questions, but sometimes he does in Scripture. How does this happen? How does this work? How does God go about predestining? Well, look at the verse. According to his purpose. Uh, according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. It's done on, according to God's own purposes. The standard by which he predestined is his own purpose. And that's it. It's not based on what we're going to do in the future. It, God doesn't look down the corridors of time and, and see what might happen and see who's going to believe and then work backwards to make that happen. It's according to his purpose. He planned it, in other words, before he created the world. He purposed it. He planned it. He foreordained it. Why am I saved? Why did God save me? I don't know. Just says his purpose. Well, it certainly wasn't anything I did. Michael Beck didn't do anything to be saved. Michael Beck didn't earn any right to claim this inheritance. In fact, I'm the last person that should get an inheritance because I was born in sin, continued to sin. God saved me, and I still sometimes sin. But yet, it's not based on me. Thank the Lord that it's not. People struggle with that. Oh, if I'm not doing something, then I can't really... Who cares? I don't want to claim any credit. I want God to get the glory, and I want Him to do the work because I can't do it. I can't save myself. Paul says, if it's of works, then it's not even true salvation to begin with. It's not even grace. So it's according to His purpose that I'm saved. His secret divine plan. If God's revealed it in Scripture, then we can know it, and we can study it. And He's given it to us for that purpose. But the secret things belong to God. Moses says in Deuteronomy, the, the revealed things to God's people and all the generations, all the children who come from that, all the generations of people faithful. But the revealed things, they belong to us. The secret things, they belong to God. And that's his counsel. That's his purpose. And it shouldn't surprise us. God is the one who works all things after the counsel of his will. Who is this God who has a purpose? Well, the same God who works all things. It shouldn't surprise us that he works our salvation to his purposes. He works all things in the world to his will. The weather that we sometimes complain about, that's God's will. Things in our life that we can't control, we really can't control anything, but we think we can. All those things are God's will. The government, who gets elected, what happens in wartime and peacetime, where we're going today, what we're going to do. Do you see what it says? All things. That's everything. All things happen after the counsel of his will, including predestination of people to be saved and, and receive an inheritance. The word for God's counsel, it describes his intelligent deliberation. So counsel, he deliberated, he gave thought in his own mind before everything was created to what he would do. And then his will is his proceeding from that deliberation to accomplish it. So God thought about it and then he accomplished it through his will. God's will to do all things that he's intentionally planned beforehand to do. Everything. Isaiah 14, 27. Isaiah understood this. Isaiah understood this. He saw God's glory. He saw God's holiness. And he said, For the Lord of hosts has planned, and who can frustrate it? And as for his stretched out hand, who can turn it back? Who can stop God from doing what God wants to do? And everything God does is righteous and holy. Who can stop him? Job learned this the hard way too. The hard way. And Job said at the end, Job 42 too. You know, Job wanted a meeting with God and he finally got it. And all God did was question Job. 
And then Job says, I know, God, that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. No purpose of God can be thwarted. He's the sovereign one. Whatever will and ability and freedom we have fits under him, not equal to him, and certainly not above him. He can do all things. And so Paul says, look, this is something that he's chosen to do. He's predestined it. And it's according to his purpose. And that shouldn't surprise us because God works all things after the counsel of his will. That's the reason he predestined. But secondly, there's also a purpose to it. We've already seen one purpose to predestination. That was to make us adopted as sons. And ultimately, in verse 6, we saw that it was according to the purpose of his glory. And Paul tells us more. To the end. To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Similar language that we saw back in verse 6. We who were the first to hope in Christ. He's, he's, he's not speaking there of Jews and Gentiles. He's not saying the Jews were the first and now I'm writing to you Gentiles. Some people take it like that. I think he's just saying the first generation. We, Ephesians, uh, the, the people with Paul, the Jews, the Gentiles, that first generation of people to believe in Christ. It's not as if the inheritance comes to later generations. He says it comes to even the first group. We were the first ones. We were the first ones to hope in Christ and we receive it. That's one of the purposes that God predestined so that even this first group and all that follow would receive it. Why did God predestine? Why is God giving us this inheritance? Because he purposed to do it. He purposed to do it even to the first. And it's all the son's work. You see, it's in Christ again. We were the first to hope where? Not somewhere else. Not Muhammad, not Buddha. Not the saints, not statues. We were the first to hope in Christ. So it's all the Son's work. He's redeeming us. It's His part in giving us the inheritance. It was all for what purpose, ultimately? Well, first purpose, so that the first group and all that would follow would get it. But ultimately, look at the end of that verse, verse 12, to the praise of His glory. It's ultimately to the praise of God's glory. His glory, his splendor, his majesty was displayed in his work of salvation. And so when we try to claim something of our own, think that we did it. I was smarter. I must have been more godly. You know, even my faith was so great in the beginning, that's why God did it. I repented more than anybody. That's diminishing the praise that should go to God. His glory is shown through salvation and we're to praise him for it. To the praise of his glory. Not our glory. We, we don't really have any glory. God has ultimate glory. Again, Isaiah, he is the man on God's holiness and God's glory, the prophet of God's holiness and God's glory. He says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. His glory is displayed all over the earth and especially in salvation, the New Testament tells us. In Isaiah 42, verse 8, I will not give my glory to another. God's glory is his and his alone. And he's not giving it to anyone else, including people who try to claim that their salvation is due to them. That, that they earned it. That they worked for it. That's stealing glory from God. You can't even do that. You can't even do that. And there's going to be punishment for that. So what's the purpose? Ultimately, it's for praising God for his glory. We can't add anything and we can't take it away. We have an inheritance, Paul says. The reason is because of God and his purposes, not because of us. And it's ultimately for his glory, not ours. Well, what about this inheritance? Can we lose it? That's the second main point of the passage. Second main point I want you to see is an inheritance guaranteed by the Spirit. It's guaranteed by the Spirit. Yeah, it's grounded on Christ. And, and we would think, well, it's in Christ, of course. But there's a lot of people who worry that they can lose it. There's a lot of churches and theological viewpoints that teach you can lose your salvation. You can lose this inheritance, they would say. And, and sometimes we see people walk away from Christianity and we say, maybe they had it and they didn't. 
They had it one day and they didn't the next. Well, a verse like this is very helpful when we're talking about this eternal salvation, this inheritance. It's guaranteed. That's what 13 and 14 say here. Uh, I do want you to see the Holy Spirit here is the seal of our salvation. He seals it. He is the seal of our salvation to secure us until the day we're finally redeemed. We're redeemed when we're saved originally, and we're redeemed in our body when Christ returns. So what is this inheritance? Well, first of all, there's a pattern. There's a pattern in verse 13 of of how this sealing comes about of our inheritance. There's a pattern for it. Paul gives a specific pattern. He says, in him, again, in Christ, he just keeps returning to this in Christ theme. You also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. How does a person get sealed so they don't lose the inheritance. How does that even come about that we receive the inheritance? He says right here, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. The gospel has to be heard. You don't wake up just suddenly one day, never hearing about Jesus, never touching a Bible, never hearing somebody preach, knowing nothing, and you wake up in a foreign land, one day you're worshiping a false god, the next day you're not. Something has to be revealed to us, and that's in the gospel. And where's the gospel contained? The message of truth. It's the gospel of our salvation. People need to hear the gospel to be saved. The viewpoint out there that that you can be saved without hearing the gospel is very popular today. It allows people to say, well, there are people from other religions that can be saved and not even know it. They're still saved through Christ. It's called inclusivism. Inclusivism. They're still saved through Christ, they would say, but they just don't know it. They've never heard of Christ. They've never heard the gospel, but he'll still save them. That's contradictory to scripture. After listening to the message of truth. When did you get sealed by the Holy Spirit, Paul says? After listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Romans 10, 14, he says the same thing in a different way. He's talking about evangelism there. How then will they call on him who they have not believed? How how can they call on Christ if they never believed in him? And then how will they believe? How will they even believe in the first place? If they've never heard of him, and how will they hear without a preacher? Somebody's got to go preach the message. Somebody's got to take the message and proclaim it. Maybe that's what we call a preacher. Maybe it's a a person who's just evangelizing one-on-one. That's a type of of a preacher, if we want to use that term. A type of gospelizer, evangelist, an evangelizer. But however that happens, whether a person reads it, hears it, feels it if they're blind in their field, they have to receive it into their mind. Or there's nothing to know about. There's nothing to believe upon. They've got to hear it, he says. So faith comes from hearing. This is back to Romans 10. Faith comes through hearing and hearing the word of Christ. So how can they call on him if they haven't believed? How can they believe if they haven't heard? And the conclusion in Romans 10, 15, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Now some hear the gospel and they ignore it. And they even get angered by it. They don't, they don't believe. They don't take heart, like Jesus says in the parable of the soils. They don't take heart. Other things choke it out. Other things get in the way. But the only way, even God's elect, the only way it can happen is through the word. They've got to hear it. And it's the gospel of your salvation. The, the message, the word of truth. Salvation here refers to a sinner who's dead in trespasses. Then they're saved and they're delivered by God's grace. That's the idea of salvation. They've been rescued. They've been delivered. It's good news. It's the gospel because it's good news. Euangelion. We get our our word evangel from it. Euangelion, evangel. The the evangelical church originally was supposed to be a church that recovered the gospel. The evangelical movement in America was supposed to be a, a church, a group of believers who had recovered the gospel. Of course, those get corrupted over time, but... The word still has its original meaning. It's good news. It's something you want to hear. If you're a sinner and you're looking for a Savior, which God is making us, right? He's changing our hearts at that moment. And we're looking for a Savior. We're calling out to Him. Then He changes our heart and we believe. We believe in Christ. And it's the good news that came to us. The good news that we heard. There's a lot of other Gospels out there. Paul says there's only one gospel and there's only one way to get saved is by hearing or we could say reading or we can say 
uh, feeling if you're using a Braille Bible, but you've got to take in the message. The prosperity gospel, though, that's not like that at all. That's a false gospel. Prosperity gospel is that you can be saved by giving more money. Or you can be blessed, especially even eternally blessed, by giving money and becoming wealthy in this life and the next. Social justice gospel. Social justice gospel. Very popular today, coming into the evangelical church movement. What's the social justice gospel? You can do good works, and that will help you to be saved, to be sanctified. You can, you can do social justice, and that's the good news that through Christians, God can make the world a better place now. There's also the works-based gospel. Pretty much touch on that every week, so I won't go into detail on that, but that's how a person can work their way to salvation. Not, not true gospel. The New Age gospel is very popular. You listen for voices. You listen for, for mystical things. You draw circles around yourself when you pray. You use certain things to look at when you pray. You, you go and look at these pentagrams to tell you your number. Mystical gospel, New Age gospel. These false gospels only bring people into further bondage to sin. That's further bondage. But the gospel of your salvation, that, that's the good news of freedom. That's the message of truth. That's the ability to be free from bondage. That's the redemption that we looked at back in verse 7. And Paul's just celebrating that. He's telling them, he's reminding them, hey, we all have this inheritance, but I want to remind you, when you first believed, you remember that? When you first believed, you remember that? The gospel. You heard it, and then he says, having also believed it. It's got to be believed. People hear it, not everybody believes in it. Why? Oh, we know it's God's sovereignty. We know it's God's sovereignty, but it has to be believed. It can't just be accepted as truth even. That's not belief. That's a type of belief. In John's gospel, he mentions that. We just read it today. People believed in him for his signs. What were, the, what were they believing in him for? They admitted what he did was real. But he wasn't entrusting himself to them. He wasn't giving himself to them. They weren't saved just because they admitted that the signs were real. They believed it was real, but they didn't believe in him as Savior and as Lord. That's a type of belief. It's a type of belief. There's also just an agreement with, an assent to everything the Bible teaches. Oh yeah, I know the Bible's there. It's true. That was me growing up. I know the Bible's true. I'm not going to read it. I'm not going to listen to it, but I don't have any problems with really what it's saying. Not, not, I don't really care. It's true. I'm going about my life. That's not what belief is. Not true saving faith, true saving belief. That it means there that you're entrusting yourself entirely, completely to Christ. You're, you're not just acknowledging that he was real. You're not just saying, well, he was real and I agree he's the Savior. But you're actually entrusting yourself to him. It's not just mental, in other words. There's a heart involved. There's a will. There's a desire to believe. That's what he's saying. You heard the gospel, and you also believed. You entrusted yourself. I, thought, I really like the word trust better than belief, because in our current culture, belief gets watered down quite a bit. Faith gets watered down. It's meaning. But trust is good. When you get on that airplane, you're trusting that pilot's going to get you there and not take the airplane down. When we are in Christ, when we have faith in him, we're trusting that he's going to take us all the way to that inheritance. So he's just reviewing, Paul is, what happened to them. He's just reviewing. That's, that's the pattern that leads up to it. And then the second thing that he says here is the promise of the Spirit's sealing. So after you heard it, and you believed it, really that instant that instant you were sealed. To seal, it means to mark something. To mark it with a means of identification. So that the mark denotes ownership, which carries with it the protection of the owner. When the emperor took his signet ring and he marked his seal on a letter, you better not open it unless you're the person that was supposed to open it. Because if you opened it and you weren't supposed to, you're dead. The protection comes with it. And so everybody, instead of signing their name like we do today, they would have these rings. And only one person had the ring. It was their ring. It was the king's ring. It was the emperor's ring. It was the father's ring. It was the business owner's ring. 
And he would put his seal on there. That was like his signature. And he would seal it up so that no one else could open it. And it was protected by that seal. That's what he's saying here. The Holy Spirit is our seal. To, to be sealed by the Spirit means that we've been marked as God's. God owns us. God owns us and no one else is going to break that seal because God won't let them. And the penalty for doing so, even if they could, would be tremendous. No one's able to do it. No one's going to do it. You know the seal they put around the rock for, for Daniel when they threw him in the lion's den? The king put a seal around it. He put his signet ring on there. No one can break that seal. The seal that was around the rock that was in front of Jesus' tomb and the soldiers that were there had the emperor's or the Roman seal on there. No one can get in there. It's the same with us as believers. We have the Holy Spirit. He didn't just seal us. He is our seal. You were sealed in Him. In Christ, you're sealed. You're not getting out of Christ. You're not going to escape through a secret hatch somewhere. Because if you could lose your salvation, right? MacArthur says if you could, you would. If you could, you would. If you, if you could, you would just go sin tomorrow and just say, you know what? I'm just going to sin for a while and lose my salvation. I'll get it back the next day and no, he, we're sealed by the Spirit. God's own Spirit is the mark of ownership. He didn't seal us. He is the seal. He's on us. He's in us. The Spirit is with us. Not only are we in Christ, we're in the Spirit. He's not talking about water baptism here. Sometimes people say, what is the sealing of the Spirit? And they say sealing of the Spirit is water baptism. Not at all. It's not even baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's a separate doctrine. The Holy Spirit does a lot for the believer. In your salvation, the Holy Spirit can regenerate, seal. He can baptize you and does. All of these things happen. Sanctifies. But here the focus is on the sealing, the protection. The, the act by God the Father through the Holy Spirit at the moment of your conversion. You hear, you believe, you're sealed instantly at that moment. The moment you believe, you have the sealing of the Holy Spirit. And now that means that the Father guarantees His security upon you as a believer in Christ. Uh, until the end of the church age, when Christ returns, you're sealed. So if Christ returns next week, you're sealed to then. If you live a long life and die, you're sealed till then. You go to be with Christ in spirit. You come back with him in your body, resurrect. You're sealed. Sealing of the spirit's not just an experience. Some good and godly men have interpreted this as an experience that you have later in the Christian life. No, he says, when did you have it? When you heard it, when you believed. It's not an experience that you have later that God's doing something big in your life. That's just conviction. That's just impression. Different things that we can have in the Christian life. The sealing happens once and it stays there. And it's the Spirit Himself with us. They heard the truth, they believed the truth, and they were sealed with the Holy Spirit. And all Christians are sealed. It's not like some Christians are sealed, and other Christians, they just didn't get that yet. Sort of like the Pentecostal belief that you don't have the Holy Spirit when you're first saved, and you have to wait and get baptized in the Spirit later to prove that you have the Holy Spirit. That's when He comes upon you, speak in tongues. All Christians have the Holy Spirit immediately. All Christians have this sealing immediately. 2 Corinthians 1.22. God also seals us, Paul says, the same word here. He seals us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. There's no exceptions there. If he wanted to tell us about an exception with some believers, he could have put it in there. Romans 8.9. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So if somebody doesn't have the Spirit, they're not saved. They don't belong to Christ. If somebody does have the Spirit, then they are saved because He is a mark of salvation. One of the marks of salvation is the Holy Spirit in your life. So there's no believers who don't have the Spirit. If you're saved, you belong to God, you have the Holy Spirit, you have been sealed. This means we have eternal security. That's the doctrine that it teaches. Eternal security. That you're eternally secure. That the devil can't come in and break that seal. You can't break the seal. The government can't break the seal. Even God himself is not going to go back on his word and break the seal. As if he would. Not at all. It's a guarantee that God will complete what he started. 
Philippians 1.6, I'm confident of this very thing, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Once redeemed, once a person is saved, they're kept by God's power, they're secured until Christ's return. Eternal security. We don't have the power to seal ourselves. We don't have the power to preserve ourselves. God is doing it. And he graciously brought us into faith in Christ in the first place. He graciously seals us. Is God going to undo his own work? Is God going to go against his promise here? If you're a believer and you're, you're struggling to wonder if you have eternal security, if you're truly saved, you have eternal security. The question is not, do you have eternal security? That's certain. The question is, are you in Christ? Are you truly believing? Did you repent? Are you repenting now? Even better than did you in the past, but are you right now? The question is not, does God secure his people that are saved? It says that he does. John 10, Jesus says it like this. John 10, 28, I give eternal life to them. They will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all. And no one's able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. That's Paul's point in Romans 8. Who's powerful enough to take us out of Christ? Who's powerful enough to break the seal? The Holy Spirit. The seal is the Holy Spirit. Who's going to break the Holy Spirit's life in us? Who's going to remove him? It's not possible. If God the Father has loved you, then he's chosen you, and he's made you born again, then God the Son died for you, and the Holy Spirit is upon you and in you. He sealed you. I like what Martin Lloyd-Jones said on this. You're either a child of God or you're not. And once you're a child of God, you are His child forever and ever. You cannot be a Christian one day and not the next. You can't wake up today, I'm a Christian, and tomorrow, I'm not. Now, you might live like the world tomorrow and sin as a Christian, but you can't lose your salvation. Sometimes, sometimes though, people will say, once saved, always saved. It's okay with the words like that, but usually it's misused. Once saved, always saved, in some circles means, oh, you got baptized when you were six? It doesn't matter if you live like the devil now. You can, you're a drug dealer now, but hey, once saved, always saved. See, that's a misuse of eternal security taught in the Bible. It doesn't say you, you claim salvation, you profess salvation at a certain point, and then you're always saved. It's not what it says. It says if you are in him, then you're secure. You don't look back to the past and just say, well, I did such and such. I went to camp and I professed Christ and I'll live like the devil the rest of my life. I'm always safe. Not at all. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible says if you are in him, you're eternally secure. The question is, are you in him? Do you have faith in him? Have you trusted in him? And if you have, then you're eternally secure. And that takes place in him. Jesus keeps coming up in him. There's only one way to God. There's only one way to God. That's through Christ. And so he says, you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. That's God's spirit. The, the promised one, the promise there is the promised one in the Old Testament. He's holy. The emphasis is on his holiness. And he's the one promised by God. The one that God said he would always send. The one that God said he would give to his people. Moses prayed this in Numbers Numbers 11, Moses prayed God would pour out his spirit on all his people. Because not everybody had this spirit in the Old Testament times. So Moses prays that everybody would someday have it. In Isaiah 44, 3, God says he will pour out his spirit. Spirit on your offspring, he says, I'll pour my spirit out on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And then we come in the Old Testament to that great passage, Ezekiel 36, the new covenant, the regeneration. And God says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. He's going to put his spirit in his people and they'll obey him because they want to. They desire to. They won't struggle like Israel did trying to obey. We'll still struggle, but not to that extent because we'll have God's spirit. I'll give you one more Old Testament. The spirit's throughout the Old Testament. Some people say he's not there at all, but he is. Joel 2.28, it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. 
I don't understand how people think the Holy Spirit's not real or that he's just a, a sort of a phantom. He's just a mist. That he's just a representation of the Father in different modes. You know, T.D. Jakes and the modalists, they believe that the Father became the Son, the Son became the Spirit. There never was three at one time. They just, God went through different modes, different transitions. It's called modalism, Sabellianism. It's a heresy because it says there's no trinity. Well, the Spirit is mentioned here, and who's saying he'll put his Spirit within you? God the Father. God the Father is saying, I'll put my Spirit in you. He's not going to become the Spirit. He's going to put his Spirit in you. Two persons. Three persons with the Son, of course. One God. This is the promised one. Even Jesus promised, kept continually telling the disciples that the Spirit was going to come. Another helper, a paraclete, someone who could come and aid them. That's the Holy Spirit. He is the guarantee. It says that he's our pledge. You see in 14 there? He's given as a pledge of our inheritance. He's the pledge. The ESV says guarantee. I like this word in Greek. It comes up a few times in the Bible. It's called erobon. Erobon. And it, it means a pledge, a down payment. Pledge really isn't the right word in English because when you pledge something, you can, you can get it back. You can have it returned. But a down payment is a small part of the larger payment. So God has given us a down payment in his spirit. He's really given us earnest money. If you're thinking of earnest money on a house, he's put down an earnest payment on what's coming. And it can't be taken away. It can't be removed. This word Erebon today is used in Greece as an engagement ring. It's an engagement ring that a young man will give to the person, to the woman that he wants to be engaged to, that he wants to marry. And he gives her that ring, and it's a pledge that he will indeed marry her, that it's going to come about. See, young ladies, that's when you know it's real, when the guy gives you the ring. If he just says it, it may not even happen, but the ring hopefully makes it more real. And certainly, when it comes to God giving us the pledge, God giving us the guarantee, it is going to be real. Well, lastly, let's get to the purpose of the sealing, the purpose. So we, we've seen that the Spirit is a guarantee, that he has a, a pattern God does of how the Spirit seals us. First, we have to hear the word, then believe. And then there's the actual promise of the sealing. But what's the purpose of it all? With a view to the redemption of God's own possession. This is just a short-term purpose, really. He's going to give us a longer term next. But God's own possession. It's his people, his possession. Believers are sealed until God fully redeems us. You see the word redemption there? It's different than the previous one in verse 7. That's Christ dying on the cross. He ransomed, he bought us, he redeemed us. This is when we get our resurrected body. This is when our body gets redeemed. Full redemption, final redemption, resurrected body. Paul says in Romans 8, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. So you can talk about adoption now and adoption when Christ returns. You can talk about redemption now that we have and there's a redemption coming when Christ returns. All these things will be brought to consummation. But ultimately, it's not just about us, but it's about God's glory to the praise of his glory. We saw that back in verse 12. We saw it in verse 6. Every time the section ends on that person of the Trinity, the Father is three through six to the praise of his glory. Then the Son, seven through twelve, in verse twelve, to the praise of God's glory. And now the Spirit's work at the end of verse 14, to the praise of God's glory. It's the ultimate purpose for everything, but especially our salvation. God's glory. We should praise him for it. We should praise him for it. The Puritan Thomas Watson, he says, Glory is an essential attribute to the Godhead, as light is to the sun. That's how glory is actually described in the Bible. His splendor shining forth. When Christ was transfigured, that was Christ's glory. So Watson says, Glory is essential to the Godhead, as light is to the sun. Glory is the sparkling of the deity. We've got to praise God for it. We can't actually see God without dying. We'll see Christ in his glory someday. 
But we see God's glory where? In salvation, Paul says. Praise God for his glory, which is displayed throughout salvation, from beginning to end. From the beginning of him choosing to the end of him sealing us all the way to that final inheritance that we will receive. Do you have that inheritance? Are you one of these that are in Christ? Can, can you say that's me? Can you know for certain? Do you know for certain? Are you one of those in him? And you can say, I have that inheritance. If you're not, then you need to trust in Christ. Don't sit and debate about these doctrines taught here because these are for believers to know, to, to find comfort. If you are not in him, you need to trust in him. You need to come to him. You need to praise him for his glory and ask that he would save you. If you are in him, then this is for you to worship God all the more. You got to get down on your knees every day and thank God for doing this. That he chose you. He chose me. Wretched sinners that we are who hated him, whether we admitted it or not, we did. We were in bondage to sin, bondage to Satan. And look at what God's done. He's done it all. We got to thank him for it every day. Let's do that now in prayer. Lord, your, your precious message, your wonderful gospel, what Christ has done for us is beyond words. We cannot express fully our gratitude for you. I pray that we would all have gratitude. I pray that like Paul, we would just burst out into praise because of your glory that's displayed in salvation. That you chose us. That you chose us, those of us who are in Christ before the foundation of the world. That you sent your son to redeem us and that you gave us your spirit as a seal and ultimately we'll be with you forever and ever. And I pray, Lord, if someone is listening today, they don't, they don't have inheritance, they don't even know what I'm talking about, they would hear this message and that they would believe upon the one who can give them eternal salvation, the one who can give them an inheritance. We don't look for a worldly inheritance. But we look for a heavenly inheritance, one that will last forever, that moth and rust cannot destroy. I pray that you would do that work in hearts here today, that you would save your people. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.